Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Excited to have you with us this morning. My name is Josh Jones. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vineyard. And as Pam just shared, we're kicking off a new fall series this morning titled Missional Hospitality. If you've been regularly attending uh, this church and you're scratching your head like, haven't we done three or four series on this kind of topic the last couple years? You're absolutely right. Uh, We're doing it again. So strap in. We're doing this because we know that God is calling our church body to engage in his mission of bringing heaven to earth in our neighborhoods, in our city, through our relationships, through our friendships. Jesus has commanded us to radically love the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our communities, by being present in this world, by being available, by being invitational. And we're focusing on on this again because it's something that's bigger than us to be honest. It's, it's bigger than us. It's something that isn't necessarily easy for most of us, or we'd already be doing it. It's something that takes time for us to cultivate and create a culture in our church. It's a journey, and God is inviting us again, you and I, to go forward with him on this journey. So we're doing seven weeks of Sunday morning messages, combined with six weeks of small groups, um, to continue to form our practices for this God-given mission of relational evangelism by engaging in hospitality. And and like Pam said, we're going to do things a little differently, and I'll talk about that again a little bit later at the end of the message. We also have that daily devotional, and I'm really excited about that, um, that we've written that goes along with this series, and I encourage you to grab one this morning. And if you're a note taker, um, I encourage you to take notes as well this morning. I have some great resources uh, for this series, Uh, a few books, if you could pop that up. The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield, The Art of Neighboring by Jay Pathak, and The Neighborhood Initiative by Lynn Corey. We have The Art of Neighboring out on the, in the lobby on our library there, and we're going to have some more of these copies of these books that you could get, and you, or you can get them online. Um, if you're a Kindle reader, that Lynn Corey one is like $2. It's really cheap. Um, some, some websites with resources, if you want to put that one up theartofneighboring.com, neighborhoodinitiative.com, and saturatetheworld.com. These are awesome websites that have stories, they have ideas, they have resources, just stuff to help us to do this because we need that kind of thing, right? We need ideas to do this. All right, so before I go further, let me just pray uh, again. And so bow your heads. Father, I thank you for today. Jesus, we delight ourselves in you, our King. Thank you that you're with us. You're here. You're with us. You're so close, God. And I ask that we would feel your nearness this morning. Speak to us. Call us again to yourself. Remind us who we are in you, God. And I ask that you would let your perfect love cast out all fear. Send the Holy Spirit. Send the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Enlighten our eyes. The, the eyes of our hearts to the hope that you've called us to and the power that you're working um, with us, for us, in our daily lives, God. Let us not lose heart or become weary in doing good, for you promise that the season is coming and we'll receive a great harvest. Teach us, equip us, empower us to learn to take advantage 
of every opportunity to be a blessing to others. And we pray that send more laborers into the field, God. We ask that you would send more laborers. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off this morning by talking about the, the reality of the cultural moment, the time that we're in. There's been a shift happening in the world around us um, for finding order and meaning and purpose in the external world to, to one that's defined by the individual, especially in what he or she or they feels. The narrative, this narrative says that gone is the recognition of transcendent, a transcendent God who created and ordered the world and, pro- and provided guidance to it and how to live in it. And in the absence of this divine order, um, there's no longer a foundation for metaphysics and morality. Left is, is the freedom to create the self without the need or reference to any essential being or anything else. Truth is ultimately reduced to personal preference. And honestly, this isn't something new. I think we probably have recognized this. It's been happening for a while now. The reality is that we live in a time and culture that's promoted individualism instead of community. Many years ago, maybe depending on what city you lived in or what um, part of the country you grew up in, um, there may have been a tighter community or maybe families lived together and shared farms. But over time, most of us, uh, that's changed for most of us because of issues of family origin, um, the prevailing mindset of individualism, we've drifted apart more and more. We live in bigger houses, we have more space, we have social media and apps and a million ways to share and connect, but yet we're more isolated than ever. Parker did an amazing job uh, a month or so ago and talked about this idea of community and talked about these things, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that message, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that more um, as this series goes on, we need to be awakened to the reality of the problems going on around us. The pain points in our culture are, are too many to list, but one of the most glaring ones is that all around us, people are lonely. All around us, people are lonely. It's pretty obvious. According to a survey, um, from the Center on American Life, the percentage of Americans who say they have no, no close friends at all has quadrupled since 1990. 54% of Americans uh, report that someti- they sometimes or always feel that no one knows them well. 54%. Around 40% of Americans report having zero close friends or confidence. Zero. That means that there's a good chance that a number of people in this room feel or know someone who feels lonely most of the week. There's a pretty good chance of that. Not only are people lonely, but we know that we're living in a mental health crisis, and the reasons for that are, I'm sure, complex, but one of the most obvious ones is that people in our secular age are living without meaning and purpose. The secular life script is great if humans are just animalistic, hedonistic consumers. You know, more money, more stuff, the more pleasure, the less discomfort, the more freedom is all we need. But if we're more than that, if if humans are are more than that, if if we have souls, if we have meaning, if our lives have a purpose, more than ourselves, 
then we're going to realize that survival and pleasure aren't enough for us. And then the secular life script, it's fleeting, it's chasing after the wind. And at some point in our life, we realize that, maybe late or early or somewhere in between, we realize this and it's, it becomes a crisis. American suicide rates have increased by 33% in the last two decades alone. Major depression rates in youth have increased by 63% in just the last few years. Those are staggering numbers. My point is that all around us, people are in pain. How do we bring the good news in light of this? How do we bring the good news in light of this? Could preaching the gospel look a lot less like a sales strategy for Jesus to win converts, a lot less like a a, a used car salesman, and a lot more like love? Could it be inviting people into our homes and into our lives and bringing the proximity of God and his love and the power of his kingdom a whole lot closer than they realize? Could it be a more could be a lot more like the stories we read of Jesus in the Gospels. Let's get into some scripture. Go ahead and open your Bibles or your devices or, or whatever you have, or you can look on the screen and turn to the Gospel according to John. John says this account, he wrote it, so that, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus that you read about in his book is alive and real, and he can change your life forever. The book of John opens with a callback to the first words of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, where God created everything with his word. And I love this chapter. I I highly encourage you and recommend to you to, to meditate on it, to study it for an extended period of time, days, weeks, months, and different translations meditate on it. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases the verses 14 through 18 in the message translation. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. I I love how he phrases that. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood. God is expressing, expressing his very self, something that we can see, something that can be touched, someone who reaches out to us. It's the love of God, the great love that he has for humanity. He makes himself known. He comes close to us. He moved next door. The creator of heaven and earth made himself accessible to you and me. All of this love All of this glory is a light that shines in the darkest places. It shines into loneliness. It shines into um, depression. It shines into brokenness. It shines into the fear of isolation. It shines into hopelessness and anxiety. It's a love that shines into the life of others. It's a love that's experiential and, and invitational. Jesus is that light. He is that love. He is that truth. He is life. He's the way of life. And we're called to shine and radiate that light like him. As we hear this and and we realize the proximity of God, he's come so close, let's move down and look what happens as Jesus begins engaging with people. So this is John 1, 37 through 38. This is where some disciples first start to follow Jesus. It says, two disciples heard him and went after Jesus. And Jesus looked over his shoulder and said to them, what are you after? 
They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he replied, come along and see for yourself. And they came and saw where he was living and ended up staying with him for the day. The word who became flesh moved into the neighborhood. He knows the questions of the human heart. He knows the needs of every person. He brings those things to the surface just by who he is and, and they can, so that they can seek him and they can find those answers in him. We know that Jesus invites his first followers to come and follow him, but I think we usually miss this important passage that says he invites them to come to the place he was staying, the place he was living. It's the, in fact, like the Lord opened up his house. He opened up his home. It was natural and authentic. And in that place, the Lord the Lord showed to them who he was and they recognized Jesus as their savior and they rushed in to bring others to meet him. If you read the next verses, you'll see it in this passage. It's here that Simon receives a new identity as Peter. Let me ask you a question. What if our lives were open to people and they came and in that space they encountered God and the way that the way that their lives were defined, their very definition, their trajectory of their lives which were changed. What if that happened? What if preaching the gospel could look a lot more like eating a meal in your home with a friend across, from across the street or margaritas in the pool for girls' night or beer and burgers and cornhole in the yard or an act of service in your neighborhood or gently offering a prophetic word to a coworker or bringing a neighbor to Alpha or, or just living in a way that simply does not make sense unless Jesus was who he says he was? Could it be meeting, in the, meeting people in the place of pain with love? Could it be just being present? That's what Jesus did. When we read the four Gospels, we see this again and again. In story after story, he goes to the place of pain, the place of sickness, the place of demonization, the place of social ostracization, and he loves people into the kingdom one meal at a time. He carried his mission and his good works in neighborhoods. It's, if Jesus is our example, and if he sent us just like the Father sent him, that probably means something for us as neighbors, right? It probably means something for us. Let's quickly look at another story in Scripture. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Let's read it. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew's his Greek name. So depending on what story you're reading and which gospel, you'll, it might be a different name, but same person. He was sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but, but the sinners to repentance. Part of the series, we want to show shows clips from The Chosen because they really like bring us into that story a little bit more. So could you go ahead and, and play that clip? Anyone want any grapes? Barnaby, you eat a lot. <laughs> Very observant, Matthew. Thank you. Simon? 
<laughs> you know, Matthew, when you're not behind iron bars, you're quite handsome. I agree. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? Hmm. May I help you? We were just on a walk and we heard voices, and I thought it sounded like. But surely not. And yet it is you. Would you like to come in? We would never. Never be caught dead in a... In a what? In a tax collector's house? Not only that, but we say... Do you know what she... And he... They are... You seem to be having troubles finding your words, man. Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I must say, I am shocked. She is from the Red Quarter. Much of what is done there cannot even be spoken by my tongue or across my lips. It is so unholy. The mere mention of it would defile me. Sounds like a personal problem. But him and the others he works with, they betray our people for money, and they are not even sorry. If you're so offended, then leave. Let them speak, Andrew. They've never offered guilt sacrifices in the temple. What? The priest keeps records. We check them. Tax collectors are not welcome at the temple. would like them better if they made the proper sacrifices. This is not about me. This is about what God wants. You are forgetting the scroll of Hosea. Hmm? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. There are righteous men on the lookout for you. And they are weighing every word you say. Is that a threat? Please let them know this, Yusuf. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Is everything under control here? Uh, yes. We were just going on our way, Centurion. There's Primi Ordina to you. Primi Ordina. I love that scene. It really draws us into that story, I think. And, and just thinking about just before before the the rabbis and the or the, the Pharisees and the those guys that were judgmental came, like just think about that table it was so authentic, it was so natural. Just where the, what they were doing there, sitting at the table. Jesus said he came for those who need saving. It was his mission. It's why he was sent. It's what he was anointed to do. Jesus announces this, and he begins doing it in villages and neighborhoods and in homes. He's hanging out and having dinner with those who are deemed unworthy and unsavable. Spending time with them. He's coming to meet those in need where they are. He brings the kingdom to them and invites them into a changed life. Could the same thing be said of us? As followers of Jesus, if the Pharisees, the holy religious people, looked at our lives, would they say they eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was at parties. He was at weddings. He was at feasts, eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors and sex workers. This was not the exception. This was the rule. This is where he was the most. So pause for a minute, and I want you to ask yourself, don't say it out loud, but who would be the tax collector and sinners of our culture? Who would be the hated and the lowly? In your kind of moral view of the world, just be honest with yourself, in your view, 
What kind of person or who's at the bottom of the moral hierarchy in your eyes? Who's at the bottom of the ladder? Who do you view as moral scum or deplorable? Kind of draw that person um, or that type of person to mind. And this is probably the one time you'll be asked to judge people in church, okay? <laughs> We're not, we don't make a habit of judging people, right? But have that person or type of person in your mind and imagine Jesus going over to their house for dinner and pouring a bottle of wine and loving on them and eating with them. Imagine that. How does that thought experience make you feel? Does it make you feel angry? Does it make you feel scared? Does it make you feel confused? That's how people felt in that moment. Like those guys were appalled that Jesus was sitting there and eating with those people. There are dozens of these stories in the four Gospels. Jesus was called a glutton. He was called a drunkard and a friend of sinners. And while I don't think he was a glutton or a drunkard, he got that reputation somehow. There's over 50 references to food in the Gospel of Luke alone. 50 references. All throughout, Jesus is pretty much either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal, if you read the stories in Luke. There's, there's, there's a season of my life, me personally, where I was, I was running far from, I was running from God. I was far from God. In fact, I was running in the opposite direction. I was living for myself, and I experienced some failed relationships, betrayal, rejection, hypocrisy, and I was angry at the church, and I was in pain, and I'd lost my vision and mission for life. And the enemy had stolen my identity, and, well, I pretty much forfeited it up to him. And I was using, using alcohol and drugs to numb my pain and fill this ever-increasing void that was expanding within me. But there were some faithful friends who, despite my brokenness, still hung out with me, still showed hospitality to me, and they were interceding for me. And the love of God encountered me and changed me and brought me back and the goodness and the kindness of God brought me to repentance. And about a year or so later, my girlfriend, Lynn, who's now my wife, and my brother, Izzy, and I started this weekly hangout at our apartment, sometimes multiple nights a week. And we, we invited coworkers and friends and, and, and different people to come in Ox from Oxford and outside of Oxford to eat and drink and, and watch movies, and specifically on Monday nights, to come over and talk about our lives and, and, and the things that we were passionate about. And over time, these Monday nights got a little more focused, and we started talking about Jesus, and people were interested, and even some people got saved and gave their lives to Jesus. And eventually, that turned into a, a house group that we called 242, and where we regularly had you know, 20 to 40 people, sometimes more, coming over and worshiping together and encountering Jesus in our basement. And, and it was amazing. It was powerful. And and then after a seasons, you know, seasons change and having a baby and COVID and th th all that was put on hold for a few years. And honestly, I'd really been missing it. I've been missing those times. And but this month, we've actually picked up some of those practices and ideas back up. It doesn't look the same exactly, but we're re-engaged. I don't know what it'll look like yet, but God does. Jesus and the early church, his followers picked up on the, this practice from the day called hospitality. Hospitality was, and still is in the Near East and other areas, a very high value. But instead of using it as a way to curry favor with the rich or move up the social ladder, for Jesus and his followers, it was a way of life. It was a way to serve the poor, to connect at a heart level. Jesus aimed it downwards, not upwards. And it changed the world. 
In fact, historians argue that this is the primary way that the gospel spread at such a rapid pace from a few hundred people eating together in an upper room in Jerusalem to over half the population of the Roman Empire, um, eventually toppling, toppling paganism itself. I believe that this was the original design for missional lives with Jesus. Hospitality was the missional design for lives with Jesus. Before he left, Jesus laid out his vision for the future. He commissioned his disciples to make more disciples by training them to obey everything he commanded and to be like him in every part of their lives. Jesus trained these disciples, and the way that he trained them was more than just sermons or lectures or college classes. It was life-on-life, multi-generational discipleship that would change the world. It was training toward its incarnational life, a life, a lifestyle of being present, a life of style of power in the midst of a world caught between the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. I love uh, medieval and fantasy movies, television shows, video games, and I was watching this series from a few years back, and it has all these different kingdoms at war with one another and these different highborn families fighting for the throne, and they each have unique castles and structures in each kingdom. And I was thinking about that show and, of course, the Roman Empire, because who doesn't, right? Like, it's always on the guy's mind, right? That's, that's what I hear. Um, and I was thinking about how we tend, or at least I tend, to see my home sometimes like a fortress in which to take refuge, to retreat to, a place where I can put up boundaries to keep myself and my family from the outside pressures of life. Do you ever view your home like that? A place to, to be secure, to put up walls around, to keep us safe from the outside world, from our, to keep our enemies out, and we'll work hard and fight to keep that, that place our safe space, right? But the Lord is challenging me, challenging my worldview, challenging me to be moved with compassion, like Jesus, to see people around me who, like I was at one time, a sheep without a shepherd. We can see our, our homes, our house, as a fort to keep us safe and keep threats out, or we can repent and begin to see our home as a gift in which to serve others. Missional hospitality leads us and calls us to recognize our home actually belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And it inspires us to use our homes to provide a welcoming, restful, and loving space to share with others for the sake of the gospel, a place of refuge for others, not ourselves. Because he's our refuge. You see, hospitality isn't just having friends over for dinner. It can be harvest fields. The word hospitality in the New Testament is Greek. It's philozenos. It's a compound word. Philo means love, and xenos means stranger or foreigner. Hospitality is the exact opposite of xenophobia. It's the love of a stranger, not the fear or hate. The love of a stranger, the welcome, of a, welcome to all as a guest. Henry Nouwen defined hospitality as the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Rosaria Butterfield defines it as turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. John Mark Comer defines it as expressing the welcome of God, the Father, to all through tangible acts of love, namely through giving food, shelter, and relationship. As followers of Jesus, 
We're invited to continue what Jesus started. In fact, a stronger word is we're commanded, not just invited, we're commanded to continue what Jesus started. But there are some, some problems that are facing the church. One of the challenges in Christianity in the West as we know it today isn't really an issue of knowledge. If you've been going to church for the past 10 years, you've probably heard some of the things that I've shared this morning. Their issues aren't that we haven't heard it. Rather, it's that our actions demonstrate that we don't actually believe much of what we claim to know. We don't actually believe it. Most Christians have heard thousands of sermons, podcasts, books, and the like, yet the lack of follow-through by walking in faith is staggering. Believing but not doing, that was a foreign concept in the Bible. It's a foreign concept to Jesus. We got to do the stuff, right? That's the vineyard phrase. We got to do the stuff. How many of us would say that we are following Jesus in this? James 1 says, be doers of the word, not merely hearers, deceiving ourselves. What's our calling to follow Jesus? To live like him, to image the world around us, to image him to the world around us. Jesus was so full of love, he couldn't not love people. Couldn't not give it away. Are we full of love in the same way? Following Jesus requires sacrifice. It requires laying down um, our lives, our preferences for others. It requires engaging with those around us. It requires looking at our, at our lives in the mirror to see where there's gaps in what we say we believe and what we actually live out and do something about those gaps. There's a reason our church has done the three series on this and there's a reason that we're doing it again. And I'm not trying, listen, I'm not trying to condemn anyone here, right? That's kind of heavy, right? But I'm not trying to condemn anyone here. If anyone's pointing fingers, it's, it's, it's our leadership pointing fingers at ourselves, okay? We're pointing fingers at ourselves and we say, we have to do this. We have to do this. But just saying that isn't enough, I want to take it another step further and get, get really honest. There's actual roadblocks and hindrances that we, as leaders, have noticed in our lives that break down our ability to live out what we know in our head. And as I list some of these things off, maybe they resonate with you. I'm not saying they are. I'm not trying to point fingers. Pointing fingers at me. Pointing fingers at John. Like, well, he can point fingers at me. Um, but maybe they resonate with you as I read these things off. Again, my purpose isn't to read off a list to make you feel bad. My purpose is to, with the Holy Spirit's help, shine a light onto these areas of our lives where there's things that are happening that are keeping us from engaging and allow God to help us to begin to wonder what it might look like what it might look like if these things weren't, weren't in our way, okay? So just some reasons why we don't engage some problems, some hindrances. Just simple, life busyness. Life is busy. There's work, there's school, there's sports, there's family stuff. It takes energy. It can be high risk. It can be costly, right? Time, money, resources, skills, attention, emotions, it takes a lot to just sit with somebody who's going through something in their life. You can't, you can't like quickly get out of that. You can't just say some nice phrase or some nice words and be like, oh, have a good day. You know, like if they're going through something, a loss of a loved one, that's, that takes time and emotion to spend with them. Some other reasons we don't engage, we're, we're inward focused. It's a good thing to be contemplative. It's a good thing to, to, to 
cultivate the things of the soul with the Lord, but we need to learn how to be contemplatives in action, as Parker likes to say. Not just, you know, going deep in our souls for ourselves, but, but then engaging with the world around us. Contemplatives in action. Some other reasons. Maybe we're incapable because of soul issues. Maybe there's, there's gaps in our lives of authenticity and integrity. Maybe there's fear of being known. Maybe there's something going on in our life that we haven't shared with anyone. And if we let people in, they're going to see that thing. Maybe we're carrying guilt and shame. Maybe, we have, maybe we're just apathetic for some reason. Maybe we have disappointments. Maybe there's negative experiences in our past. Maybe we've experienced betrayal. Maybe we've experienced false community. Maybe there's just been a a loss of focus on our purpose and calling in Jesus. Just call it like it is. And there's just like, if you're in part of the church body, you know, there's just things like church busyness. We, We don't have margin in our lives for loving our neighbor. We're busy doing other ministry stuff. You know, we have an event-based church life versus a way of life in Jesus. We, we like, come to Sunday morning service. We, we go to all the prayer meetings. We go to all, all the worship events, and, and we go to all the small groups, but they become more important than learning a way of life with Jesus. Another reason we might not engage is we just overthink it. We make it too difficult. We might get in performance mode, like the house has to be perfect, the the yard has to be perfect. The food has to be perfect. Uh, the furniture has to be perfect. Whatever it is, like, you know, we, we do that. I do that. I do that. Maybe we, we want to engage, but we just simply, like, we don't, we don't know how to do it. We have no entry point. We have no idea on what to do, or, or, or that's just coming hard for us. And then lastly, we don't have the life-on-life multi-generally multi-generational training that the disciples did. That life on life, doing it with somebody and learning how to do it. Those are just some reasons, and and they're real, I think. Uh, They're real for me. I think that our leadership has identified some of these things, and maybe they're real for you. And I just want you to sit with that. I don't want you to feel bad about those things, but I want you to sit with the Holy Spirit on those things this next week. And like Pam said, we're doing things a little different in our life groups this series. Three of the weeks, we're going to be meeting with with our leaders in these formation groups. And these formation groups, these weeks will be about incubation. They'll be about equipping and asking questions, coming up with ideas, addressing those problems and hindrances that keep us from engaging in relational evangelism through hospitality. We'll be talking the practicals of hospitality, like creating safe spaces, like having our goal to be building authentic connection, not just so we can invite people to church on Sunday, right? Um, we're not going to judge people. We're not going to be like those Pharisees. We're, we're not going to make judgmental statements. We're not going to quarrel. We're going to avoid stupid controversies. We're going to listen. We're going to talk less and listen more. Ask questions about people and their story. Be a witness. Tell our story and include God in that story. And, we're, and you know, when the need arises, we're going to be naturally supernatural and just pray a quick prayer for somebody. And then the other weeks, we're going, to do, we're going to be doing the stuff. We're going to be inviting people to do things with us, and specifically people who we don't already hang out with regularly and may not be born-again believers. Stuff like going bowling, investing in people over dinner, wine tasting, beer, you know, movie night, bonfire, sports, something, going somewhere together, Oktoberfest, a double date, out to dinner, 
go on a hike, coffee, you know, brunch, Sunday supper, book club, game night, whatever it is, whatever it is you like to do, to, to engage in that and invite people to do it with you. I want to read again Romans 12, what, what we uh, focused on this morning in our Lectio as Pam led us through it. This is from the Passion Translation. It says, let the inner movement of your heart always be to love one another and never play the role of an actor wearing a mask. Despise evil and embrace everything that is good and virtuous. Be devoted to tenderly loving your fellow believer as members of one family. Try to outdo yourselves in respect and honor of one another. Be enthusiastic to serve the Lord, keeping your passion towards him boiling hot. Radiate with the glow of the Holy Spirit and let him fill you with excitement as you serve him. Let this hope burst forth within you, releasing a continual joy. Don't give up in times of trouble, but commune with God at all times. Take a constant interest in the needs of God's beloved people and respond by helping them and eagerly welcome people as guests in your home. Show hospitality. In closing this morning, I want, want to remind us that hospitality is both a practice and it's a posture. It's a way of being in the world. It's not just cooking a meal with a friend, though it can include that. It's where you embody and you express God's great welcome everywhere you go. It's, it's a fundamental attitude towards our fellow human beings, which can express God in a great variety of ways. And even as I speak, I've been speaking this morning, I hope that something's been stirred in your chest, something that, an idea that comes to mind, desire that, that might be from the Holy Spirit. It could be really small, it could be ordinary, yet it could open up a whole new dimension of, in your experience in life with God. When we participate in this outbound flow of love from the Father and the Son and the Spirit to everyone around us, especially towards those in pain and those who are far from the love of God, we somehow encounter God in an incredible and beautiful way. And as we participate in God's divine hospitality, we experience, we too experience God's divine welcome and his love for us. That's, that's what we were made for. And we're made to receive and we're made to give away. So let's stand together. We're going to pray and go into worship. Yeah, Jesus, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you that we get to do this. I thank you that your way of life, Jesus, was simple. It was, it was engaging with people around, around you. So, Holy Spirit, I just ask you to come right now. You'd fill us with hope. You'd fill us with ideas. You'd give us a new worldview. God. You'd stir up wonder in us. Questions, what would, what would life look like if we weren't hindered, if there wasn't something in our way blocking us from engaging in the life that you've called us to? And I ask that you would cast out all fear again with your perfect love. We would experience your wrapped around presence right now. In Jesus' name, amen.